Welcome to the Seed World Pro Podcast, where seed industry professionals get the knowledge, tools, and peer support they need to grow their businesses and careers. Today, guest host Julie Deering will be joined by three industry experts to talk about the recent mega mergers and what direction they expect the industry to move in. Today, we are looking at the landscape now that the mega mergers are behind us, and I'm joined by three fantastic individuals. Phil Howard, a Michigan State University associate professor who is known for his graphics and tracking industry consolidation. We're also excited to welcome back Dean Cavey, a managing partner at Verdant Partners. And it's our first time to welcome Alistair Phillips of AgBio Investor. Alistair is joining us from the UK, and I am excited to get this discussion started. Phil, you have been following industry consolidation and not just for the seed industry, but across a number of different sectors for quite some time. So I have wondered through the years, you know, how you got started in this and why? Yeah, I uh, got my PhD at the University of Missouri and there are uh, colleagues there who've been studying these trends towards industry consolidation and concentration for decades. Uh, So I started working with them and then after I graduated, continued to look at industries that they hadn't looked at, like uh, organic food processing. And then a little over 10 years ago, uh, I decided to look at the seed industry because there had been so many dramatic changes, particularly starting in 1996 when the first genetically engineered seed was released. So I developed a visual of changes from 1996 to 2008. There was a lot of interest, so I've updated it every five years since, so one that went till the end of 2013 and then the end of 2018. Uh, And of course, just during that 10-year period, we've gone from uh, six big seed chemical corporations to just four. Mm -hmm. When you do that, is there anything that surprises you, not just for the seed industry, but as you look across, you know, some of the other things, I think you've done food and beverage and uh, bread and seed and um, a number of other things. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of surprises. One is that these trends are very hidden. Um, Even people who work in these industries may not know every single deal that takes place. So uh, visualizing it helps people see just at a glance what changes have occurred. And uh, it's often surprising just to see how many. Uh, But it's also sometimes surprising to see that there are firms that resist these trends. There are um, independent companies that refuse um, enormous buyout offers. I've kind of coined this internally, um, the illusion of choice, be it good or bad, but um, there are a lot of brands out there, but um, you know, how much choice is really there? So (laughs) the question that that I often ask, and does this impact um, other research that you're doing, or does it lead you to other questions in terms of what you do at the university? Yeah, and a lot of these These trends, I'm interested in some big questions like what are the impacts and what are the drivers? Those are pretty complicated questions to get at. It's uh, it's much easier just to track ownership changes and visualize them. But you know these changes have a lot of implications for not just people in the industry, but you know basically everyone because everyone eats. Everybody's tied to agriculture, like it or not. So I want to go ahead and move into kind of the recent round of um, consolidation where we've come from uh, now that the uh, mega mergers are behind us um, in the landscape that we're in today. Dean, do you want to provide us an overview? Certainly happy to do that, uh, Julie. And uh, I do agree with Phil's comments about 
the radical changes and consolidation that has taken place in the seed industry, starting with the introduction of transgenic crops in 1996. We often refer to that as fourth agricultural revolution because I think, at least for many farmers, certainly in the U.S. and and other markets accepting of transgenic technology, it has revolutionized the way they farm. It has made them more efficient. And in my opinion, and I think in many other people's opinions, has made them actually more environmentally responsible because it has uh, allowed them to use less harmful chemicals and allowed them to make less passes over the field, therefore using less fossil fuels. So I think it has had a dramatic impact on the farmer and has been the main driver behind the consolidation that has taken place uh, since that time. The unfortunate thing about this is the consumer hasn't really seen the benefits of that technology. They certainly are indirect beneficiaries of the technology, but it's not delivered in a way that they understand it or can can accept it in many cases. Clearly, if we're going to be able to feed 10 billion people by 2050, there has to be advances in technology that will allow us to produce more food on a declining number of acres or hectares around the world. As a result of this uh, introduction of technology, we saw a rapid consolidation of the row crop sector of the seed industry from really about 2004 through, through about 2010. And it mainly affected the crops of corn, soybean, cotton, and to a lesser extent, a few of the other row crops. Consolidation was really driven by the large seed and crop protection companies who were the owners of the technology. And because they owned that technology, they also wanted to have a greater degree of control over the distribution of that technology in the form of seed and trait platforms. And so they started buying up Uh, many, many small to medium-sized independent seed companies so that they would control the channel directly to the farmer. As I say, that happened over an approximate eight to 10-year period, really. That resulted in uh, in six large companies, as Phil had previously uh, commented on. But with the decline in commodity prices and the consistency of those low commodity prices, it seemed that these larger companies could not continue to afford to spend on research and development as they have in the past without there having been further consolidation and access to greater resources. Mm-hmm. And so that is principally why we believe that these major transactions over just the past three or four years have occurred. You know, obviously, this started with uh, Monsanto attempting to buy Syngenta, and then a lot of dominoes fell in different directions after that. Syngenta ended up being acquired by Chinese. Bear Corporation ended up buying Monsanto. And of course, we know that Dow and DuPont consolidated to form Corteva. And I think the major driving force behind that is if we're going to continue to innovate in the seed and trades area, and ultimately, if we're going to be able to feed 10 billion people in just 
30 years, we have to have more uh, research. And these companies could not afford to continue to spend at the level they were spending, given low commodity prices and given the reduction in returns they were getting on their products at the farm level. The consolidation of these companies allowed for greater efficiencies and therefore allowed them to continue spending at either the same or even higher levels as compared to what they were doing before. While I think these consolidations are scary to some people, I think it was probably a necessary step for the future of agriculture and ultimately for the future of our food supply on a global basis. There are definite pros and cons to the changes that have taken place. And so I'd like to kind of dig into that a little bit. Alistair, have you witnessed kind of an increase in startups since we've seen the takeoff of these mergers and acquisitions? No, I haven't seen the proliferation of uh, startups um, accelerating because of this. I'm probably going to go over a few points which uh, the gentlemen before me have already spoken about. And I would definitely agree that this um, level of consolidation has occurred because it due in part to the decline in commodity prices. And because of the declining of commodity prices, we've actually seen less new technology coming onto the market because what we've seen is commodity prices coming down. Average seed prices have been coming down because seed companies have to be realistic in what prices can actually be realized for that technology. Because seed prices have been coming down, there isn't so much of an impetus to actually bring new technology onto the market. So you're not actually going to realize the full fruit of that investment. As Dean correctly said, a lot of money goes into R&D, but if you're not able to actually realize that investment through uh, getting return on that, why bother doing it in the first place? The new technology that we have seen coming onto the market in the last few years, the particularly the new herbicide-tolerant technologies of Enlist and Extend and GT27 from, uh, from Bayer and uh, BASF. These technologies have really come out of a technical necessity rather than an economic opportunity because you've just had to look at the rates of glyphosate-resistant weeds coming in the USA. So growers have to have other technologies that combat these weeds. So we're getting more differentiated herbicide-tolerant technologies coming out. But what does that mean for the grower? If they have more herbicide-tolerant technologies within these plants, it gives them less control in burn down. For instance, if you put more herbicide tolerant technology, stack them up, you're reducing the, the number of herbicides that you can use to clear that uh, crop or any residual crop for the next cultivation season. I'm getting a little bit off track there, but because of the declining seed price and the declining commodity prices, you're not going to see the same amount of technology coming onto the market. So there are less opportunities for small startup companies because the big companies are right now are only just getting back into a mindset of making smaller acquisitions. Over the last three, four years, we've had all of these well-documented mergers and acquisitions happening in the uh, in the industry, and even companies that were not directly involved in these mergers and acquisitions, like the KWSs and the Vilmorans. You just have to look and see what transactions they've been doing in that time, and basically there was nothing. So even the smaller companies that were not directly involved. They just shut down on all M&A activity just 
so they could see what was going on. What is going to be the new commercial landscape after all of this is shaken out? And it's only now are you starting to see not so much the big four companies, but starting to come down into the medium and uh, lower tiers of the industry. Everybody's starting to make up mergers and acquisitions now. You just have CKWS. They, they purchased a vegetable seed business earlier on this year because they were very interested in getting some of the, uh, the assets that buyer were looking to uh, get rid of through antitrust. Yes, the, the companies are going to start getting a bit more active in M&A and looking to build distribution channels especially in North America, you're going to see these mom and pop small uh, companies starting to get acquired by the larger companies. So you're building their distribution base. And one of the things that you mentioned that kind of really caught my ear is, you know, technology development out of necessity versus economic opportunity. And when I think about those differences, one of the things that strikes me is, and especially with the example that you provided with the herbicide technology, is that a lot of companies can no longer hang their hat on just selling seed is that, you know, it's seed and chemical recommendations on the farm. You know, they go hand in hand today and there's no longer that differentiation. Yep. And um, I'm glad you made that point because that was the second point I was trying to make about the, the actual driver of these um, mergers and acquisitions. And yes, in, in a weak economic situation, if you can't grow your business organically, you're going to go out and buy somebody. That's one arm of one of the reasons why we had industry consolidation. The other is the new technology that is really starting to hit the ground running now, and that is the digital agriculture and precision agriculture element. You have to go back four years ago and ask yourself, why did Monsanto want to try and buy Syngenta? And the whole reason is it's the digital ag offering. Monsanto, at the time, the largest seed company in the world, they only had a glyphosate business and a few other uh, crop protection molecules. But what they really needed to fulfill their field scripts business was that they wanted a digital platform where they could recommend to the grower the seed but then also all of the uh, agronomic practices of how to plant, when to apply CP, but also what crop protection uh, molecules to apply. And that was the, the bit that was missing from Monsanto, is that yes, they had the complementary glyphosate part to go over the top of herbicide-tolerant uh, crops, but they didn't have anything else. They didn't have any insecticides or fungicides to freely c complete this whole holistic approach. And so that is one thing that we tell our clients and anybody that's willing to listen is that agriculture is no longer just crop protection and seed. It's the together and even more now than any other time in agriculture, seed is dictating crop protection usage. How do you think biologicals play into that? Do you think there will continue to be uptake there? Not uptake in terms of farmer adoption, but uptake in terms of companies wanting to merge or acquire to bring those in-house when you look at that holistic landscape? We see the whole biological space on a global level continuing to be a really hot area. In fact, there is more interest in biologicals than there are companies who are pursuing that technology. From a, a mergers and acquisition standpoint, there is far more demand for biological companies than there are biological companies uh, still available in the industry. And I think the main reason for that is with the relatively high cost of seed and trait packages, corn, it can be in the 
uh, certainly in the two and three hundred dollar range per bag of seed and in soybeans it has been in excess of fifty dollars per bag at the current low level of commodity prices and the expectation that those low levels will continue indefinitely i think farmers are looking for ways to deliver similar benefits to what they would get in a, a multi-trait bag of seed corn or soybeans, but at a much reduced cost. Going for a less expensive bag of seed and then combining that with some biological protection is an interesting and in many cases effective and much cheaper alternative for the farmer. So I think that's the, really the driving force behind biologicals, and I think we're going to see that uh, interest level continue for the foreseeable future. Biological uh, crop protection products do have advantages over conventional chemicals in uh, in Europe because of the more harsh regulatory environment that the Europe is facing. You're going to but, say you bring a unique perspective being in Europe and, and uh, um, yeah, having, having a different regulatory environment, but certainly we've seen things that are happening there come, come to the U.S., so it's a matter of time. Yeah, so in the, the, the whole world, we are trying to be more environmentally friendly and uh, reduce chemicals where required. However, chemical crop protection is still an in integral part of um, agriculture and biologicals are not the silver bullet because of in-field performance. Biologicals certainly are quite well suited to controlled environments such as greenhouses. So specialists in fruit and vegetable production are certainly making use of vegetables. But where biologicals for row crops really find their feet is in seed treatments, especially when they're in combination with um, conventional crop protection products. Because the conventional crop protection product will have excellent knockdown effect on any particular uh, disease. And and the biological is best suited to then stop reinfection or to encourage suppression of that disease. So you have multiple mode of action control of these diseases when you're using a combination biological and crop protection seed treatment. And seed treatments are getting more and more important. I mean, I think basically all corn and soybean in North America will have some form of seed treatment put on it by the manufacturer rather than the older way of doing it where, um, especially if you were in farmer-saved situations where you would do on-farm on seed treatments. But um, as the market is swinging away from you know, farmer-saved, especially in North America, you will always get manufacturer-applied seed treatments. And even the, the, lar the larger independents, such as you know, the Becks and the Steins, Becks says now that all of its seed comes treated. Phil, uh, what trends are you seeing when you look out? I think one of the things that's really interesting is the rise of China. I mean, you have ChemChina acquiring Syngenta, but you also have Longping High Tech entering the top 10 in seed companies, and I expect it to continue to rise because they've been very active in making more acquisitions, and both these firms have a lot of support from the government of China, um, you know, in terms of very low interest loans, loans that are approved very rapidly, you know, a regulatory environment that, that's favorable. So I think we're going to see these Chinese firms get bigger and bigger and perhaps at the expense of firms in Europe that have, a, a, you know, a different regulatory environment and less government support for acquisitions. Mm -hmm. 
I know that we're um, running, getting close to running out of time, so I want to um, keep the ball moving along. When we think about uh, where we are today and the choices that farmers are asked to make, where do you think, where do you think we're headed? I think, I think we've all uh, agreed that there has been consolidation in the industry and that the major companies at the top of the industry have been reduced from six to four. But having said that, I don't think that that in itself reduces the number of choices that will be available to the farmer. That may have been the case if, the, if we'd gone from six to two or six to one, but given that there are still four highly competitive companies at the top of this industry and then a few major sized independents, I think farmers will have just as many choices going forward as they have in the past. I think competition will dictate that. But when you look at technology's application of this industry, I think farmers will have an increasing number of choices going forward as it relates to uh, seed genetics, as it relates to trait packages, as it relates to biologicals, and certainly as it relates to this whole uh, ag technology sector and the capabilities that that will bring to the farmer in the future. I would uh, amend that slightly by saying that I'm not sure that today's average farmer who is about 68 years old is going to adapt, uh, adopt a lot of this new you know, big data type technology, but I think the next generation, today's farmer's son or daughter who will follow him into the farm, I think they are the real uh, market for this new technology and the ones who will make greater use of that to the farmer's benefit and produce, you know, greater efficiencies on the farm. Yeah, they're really going to be the ones that see precision agriculture come together in the way that everybody's working toward, the way that it's designed, but there's still a lot of work that has to be done there. One of the bits of points of resistance about the latest uh, round of consolidation that occurred was that there was a fear within the industry that the well the amount of companies doing basic R and D was going to decline. Um, certainly, that was more prevalent on the crop protection side of the business. And for instance, the merger of Dow and Dupont required Dupont to spin off a load. Well, actually, divest a load of R and D activities to uh, FMC for example but it didn't so didn't so much happen on the seed side of the business i mean syngenta getting bought by chem china syngenta are only going to benefit from that because if you look at the the amount of patents for new technology china is the leader so syngenta because they are de facto now owned by the chinese government are going to have access to that type of technology and so as one of the leading seed companies in the world they have expertise in in commercializing such technologies. Uh, the Monsanto buyer or buyer's acquisition of uh, Monsanto was um, was quite good because buyer was always a very high portional spender of R&D. 39% of their yearly revenue got directed towards seeds and traits, which was extremely high compared to the rest of the industry. They are used to spending large amounts of money on R&D. Monsanto spends $1.4 billion a year on uh, R&D. So that was a good merit. And um, Dow and DuPont. Dow was a, a, a smaller seed company compared to the ones we've already been speaking about, but they were very, very technically innovative. They had about eight insect resistant traits in development prior to, to the merger with, uh, with DuPont. 
But the problem was that they didn't have enough R&D spend to take all of those products through to commercialization, or that, that is my opinion of it. But the flip side of that coin was that you had DuPont Pioneer, second largest seed company in the world, spending $800 million a year on R&D, but have never brought one of their own uh, GM transgenic traits to market. To me, that was a perfect uh, combination between... Um, Dow and DuPont to make Corteva and then BASF to be honest I think BASF is the greatest benefactor of this recent round of consolidation because what the, what they got was an, a 1.5 1.6 billion dollar seed business that they were able to acquire in one go if they were trying to build up comparable seed business, it would take them a long time through many, many different acquisitions, and they wouldn't have something as good as what they were able to buy straight from, uh, from buyer. Just to round that off, I think that growers are going to have access to the same level of technology that they did before because the, the R&D base has now been sort of redistributed amongst the same number of com companies. And they are all large, multinational, international-focused businesses that will be looking to you know, diversify their seed portfolio through new hybrids and also through new GM trait technology. A lot of the technology that is owned and was commercialized by these big companies were not necessarily created by these big companies. A lot of this technology originated in so-called biotech boutiques, which were ultimately acquired by Monsanto and others, thus giving them access and ownership to this technology. And we continue to see a lot of activity by these independent research institutions. And I think we'll continue to see new technology and new opportunities come out of these smaller independent laboratory operations. You know, when you look at the cost that it takes to bring a GM um, trait to market, um, and if, you know, some of the gene editing methods um, or the products derived from gene editing methods are not regulated um, as such, and they don't have to incur the cost nor the timeline, they're more of an opportunity for um, universities to become players. See, the, the gene editing technologies such as, um, you know, the latest CRISPR technology, I, I class that as a trait enabling technology. Uh, the end grower won't necessarily see the benefits of seed companies using that technology, but what it does allow to do is reduce R&D costs and uh, times to, to develop new products. As you correctly said, that, uh, you know, the, there is a high cost to the development of, a, of an average GM trait. You know, it's around 200 and no, 136 million dollars. I think it was. Um, I, I should know that I was actually on the team that generated that report, but it's been a while since uh, since we did that. All right, that's a wrap. Thanks to today's speakers, Phil Howard, Dean Cavey, and Alistair Phillips for taking the time to join us. I've so appreciated the discussion. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our Seeds of Change podcast and stay tuned for the next one. Thanks again. Bye bye. <laughs>